morning, church family. I'm reading from John 20, 24 to 31. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I'll not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord, my God. Then Jesus said to him, told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Well, uh, good morning, uh, Wyoming Church of Christ. Uh, again, my name is Nathan, and uh, thank you so much for uh, having me to share God's Word. It really is a, a absolute privilege to be here. Uh, can I encourage you, if you have uh, your Bible, keep it open just as we work through. We're only looking at two verses this morning, um, but it'll be great to see uh, with your own eyes just as we look a little bit deeper at these words Before I jump in, let me just quickly ask the Lord for his help uh, for myself and for you who will be listening. Let's just pray. Our Father, we come before you and, uh, Lord, we have uh, no right to even approach you apart from your Son. And he is the reason why uh, we're tuning in online. He's the reason why we're still preaching uh, during this time of uh, COVID virus where we can't meet He is the reason why we have any hope and so we come in his name and Lord really our purpose and desire this morning is to see him lifted up. He is so glorious. Your word is a two-edged sword. It's alive and active but we are the ones who are often dull. So may you cause us to come alive to your living word. May you speak to us. May you reveal Christ and may he be shown to be irresistible before our eyes this morning. Help me in my weakness and help everyone who is listening and tuning in, God. Uh, You know each one by name, and I pray that the word may find good soil as it is proclaimed now. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you uh, ever gotten to the end of a book or maybe the end of a movie, and as you turn that final page or as the screen goes black of the film, you're sitting there wondering what was the point of it all? There's been a couple of movies that I watched with my wife and when it's all finished, we look at each other blankly and think, what was the point of that? Uh, Movies and books, they're written for and made for different reasons. Some are to inform us, some are to entertain us, some are to garner a following and to enlist people. Some might be to critique uh, the current status of society. There's many different reasons. But we have the life of Jesus recorded for us, especially in the Gospel of John. Now, he writes for 21 chapters. That is a ton of words here. 
But what is the point of it all? Don't you want to, wouldn't you want to know as you read through John, as you've read through Matthew, as you've gone through it, what is the point of it all? Why is it here? Well, we have here two verses that the author John so graciously gives us. He can sum up the main point of it all in just two verses, really neatly for us. So I want us to look at two things here this morning. I only have two points. The first one is John's purpose in writing this gospel account, his gospel account. His purpose is firstly to convince us and give us evidence. Now, let me just show you really quickly. It was just read, but look at verse 30 of chapter 20. John says this, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So immediately he he tells us the purpose of all of this is that we would believe who Jesus is. Now, the interesting thing is after 20 chapters of writing, John says these surprising words. I left stuff out. I left things out. Now, this is quite surprising when you consider his purpose. He's trying to convince us and bring us an argument to prove who Jesus is. And he says he's left things out. Now, I don't know about you, but when you look at your Bible, especially your New Testament, have you ever been puzzled by how short Jesus' biography is? Think about it. We get four gospel accounts of the life of Jesus. So if you've got a Bible in your hand, your Bible will be about roughly this thick. But when you consider how much is written on Jesus' biography, it might be about this much. It's not very big at all. Recently at the shops, I saw uh, the biography that's just been published of our former Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull. Now, if you were to put the biography of Malcolm Turnbull on the table and you were to put the biography of Jesus' life next to it, Jesus' life would look like a footnote in compared to Malcolm Turnbull's life. And so when you, when you consider this, the records of Jesus' life are so small. It's puzzling. The greatest figure who has ever walked the face of the earth, his biography is so minimal. God made flesh, the eternal Son of God who walked among us, has such small details written about him. And so it's surprising that John would say, I left stuff out. Why would he do that? I mean, you look at, you read the Gospel of John, not a single parable mentioned, nothing on Jesus' ethical teachings, not a single mention of the narrative concerning Jesus' birth. All of that is left out. But what's even more surprising is what John himself says that he left out. What does it say there? In verse 30, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in front of us that are not recorded in this book. I recorded some of his miracles, but I left a bunch of it out. Now, this is interesting. I don't know about you, you, but I have been in a situation so many times where I've been passionate about something and I really want to convince someone and, and I'm trying to convince them. I'm throwing everything at them to try and get them to believe what I'm saying, but I have minimal evidence. I have minimal evidence to support my argument and I'm really trying to convince them with crumbs. Well, what John is saying here is, I've written 20 chapters, but there was so much that I cut out. I have leftovers here. I could have compiled so much more, but I cut it out. 
to show you just how much he cut out, the very last lines of his gospel say this. Take this in, chapter 21, verse 25. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. So if everything that was documented in Jesus' life and his ministry was written and explained, and you put that next to Malcolm Turnbull, all the libraries in the world wouldn't be able to contain it. But John says, even though I could have written volumes upon volumes, I didn't. Why did he cut so much out? Why is there so much removed for us? Why don't we see all of it? Well, if John's purpose for writing the Gospel of John was to entertain us, then the volumes would have been written. Have you ever noticed when you read, when you read through the Gospel accounts of Jesus' life, have you ever noticed there's no mention of his appearance? What colour hair did he have? How tall was he? What did he look like? What did his voice sound like? If his gospel was designed to entertain us, well, why doesn't he record anything? What was Jesus' childhood years like? Whatever happened to his father Joseph, who just seems to disappear from the pages? What were Jesus' relationships like as a young boy? How was he sinless as a child? What did that look like? There's no mention of any of that. If his purpose was to entertain us, it would have been that. But what does John say? But these signs, miraculous signs were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. What's the point of it? It's not to entertain us. It's to provide us with proof and evidence, eyewitness records of who Jesus really is. What's John referring to here? He specifically mentions it, the miraculous signs that were recorded and the ones that were left out. Now, what's the point of a sign today? I mean, they're everywhere. You just drive around on the road and you see signs everywhere. They're all over shopping centres. They're everywhere. What's the point of a sign? Well, a sign is designed to point to something. It's to reveal something. It's to show the identity of something. See, Jesus' miracles, John says, they're not just miracles. They're miraculous signs. They're pointers. Jesus, I mean, we can read of Jesus healing a paralyzed man and we can read over it and keep drinking our coffee and move on to the next encounter and be unfazed by it. That wasn't normal back then. It's not normal for a paralyzed man to be healed today. And it wasn't normal back then. When the man who was born blind is healed by Jesus and he's arguing with the religious leaders, the man stands up and says, hold on a second. Nobody has ever heard of the opening of the eyes of someone who was born blind. No one's ever heard of this. You see, these miracles were signs pointing to Jesus' identity. Let me say something that might shock you. Jesus' miracles, the point of them was not primarily the benefit of the recipient. So the person who was sick, the main point wasn't that they would get better or that they would get their sight or that they would be relieved from d demonic possession. Yes, he did that because he loved them. Yes, he had compassion upon them. But more than all of that, they were signs to reveal who this mysterious figure was. That was the point. And so John is saying, I have written more than enough about his miraculous signs that you may believe in him. But on the flip side, I have given more than enough proof to condemn those who are unwilling to believe. There's more than enough proof, so there's no excuse. 
These signs were written and they are sufficient to believe in him. What are the miraculous signs that John is talking about here? Well, when you read John's gospel, unlike the other Matthew, Mark and Luke, John gives us seven miraculous signs that he records, seven. Now, I want to briefly just go through these because I want you to see how John records these and God's purpose behind it. Let's look at these seven. The first one, I'll be very quick here. Now, the first one is recorded in chapter 2. Now, Jesus takes, in chapter 2, he takes six stone um, jars filled with water and he turns each of them into wine at a wedding. It's an incredible miracle that he does. But look what John says at the end of the miracle. Don't be obsessed with the wine. In verse 11, John says this, This, the first of his miraculous signs... He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Do you see the point of the miraculous sign? It revealed his identity and his glory. And what was the result? His disciples put their faith in him. That's the point of miraculous signs like we see in chapter 20 verse 30, so that you would believe in him. The second miraculous sign is recorded in chapter 4. This is the royal official who comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, my son, my child is so sick, he's about to die. Now, what's the miraculous sign? Jesus heals this boy at the brink of death, but he doesn't even go to the house to heal him. Jesus speaks and gives the command and very far away where that boy is in his bed, he's healed in that moment. Jesus doesn't even need to go there. Now, what does it say? What is John careful to record at the end of this? Verse 54, this, the second miraculous sign that Jesus had performed, the official and all his household believed. Do you see the point? Miraculous sign, Jesus' glory is revealed, his identity, and people put their faith in him. That's the point. That's the point of it. Third miraculous sign, there is the man who's been an invalid for 38 years by the pool at Bethesda. Now, Jesus comes to this invalid who's been like that for 38 years. And in one display of power, in a moment, Jesus does divine surgery. He heals him, complete rehab, the whole package in one moment of power. John records that. The fourth miraculous sign in chapter 6, Jesus takes five pieces of bread and two fish and he feeds 5,000 men. So this could have been anywhere up to 20,000 people, including women and children. Jesus creates food that wasn't there. He creates it before their eyes. And it's so impressive that the author wants to show at the end of it, 12 baskets full are collected. It's amazing. And then as he leaves, as the crowds are dismissed, he's portrayed as walking on the raging sea. It's incredible. The fifth miraculous sign is one that I had just briefly mentioned earlier, is in chapter 9. It's the healing of the man born blind. Now, what was the result when the man who'd never seen since birth, he'd never opened his eyes after Jesus heals him? It says this in chapter 9, verse 38. Then the man said to Jesus, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Miraculous sign revealing Jesus' glory, and the man worships and puts his faith in Christ. That's the point. Six miraculous signs, two left. John chapter 11 
that famous account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus has been dead for four days. The decaying process has already been underway. They don't even want to move the, the stone because of the smell. Now, it's so critical to see what Jesus does before he raises Lazarus. He doesn't go straight to raising him. He wants to do something. He prays. He doesn't pray privately. He prays out loud so that people can hear him. And this is what he says in verse 41. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they might believe that you sent me. Now, he does the great miracle. The dead man comes out in grave clothes. But what's the result? Verse 45. It's not so much that a dead man's been raised. That's not the point. Verse 45 is, Many who had seen what Jesus had done put their faith in him. It's not about Lazarus. It's not about the blind man. It's about Christ. Who is this one walking among us? And when people saw it, they put their faith in him because the sign showed his identity. Last sign that John gives us, the seventh sign, miraculous sign, is Jesus' own resurrection from the dead. Why is that considered to be one of the miraculous signs showing his identity? Well, to see the sign, you have to go back to chapter 2. In chapter 2, Jesus walks into the temple And when he looks around, he's furious. He sees the place of worship and prayer turned into a marketplace. And he makes a whip. And in an amazing display of power and authority, he drives up to thousands of people and animals out of that temple. In fury, he does it. Righteous fury. Now, the religious leaders are watching on and they hate what they see. Who is this man that would dare to take upon himself such authority to clear the temple like this? And look what they say to Jesus. In chapter 2, verse 18, it says this, They demanded of him, What miraculous sign, there's those words again, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority for doing all this? Who do you think you are? Do something to prove it. Give us a sign. Verse 19, Jesus replies, Jesus said to them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And what's the response of the religious leaders? They mock him. You're going to rebuild this temple in three days. It's taken 46 years to build. But John gives us insight into what Jesus was saying. He was foretelling us, he was prophesying of a future miraculous sign. Verse 20, but the temple Jesus had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from from the dead, his disciples remembered what he said. Then they believed the scripture and the words Jesus had spoken. Miraculous sign fulfilled and his disciples had their faith placed in Christ. John says, I've left so much out, but what I have included is more than enough for everyone to believe, more than enough evidence. What is the evidence pointing to? That Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, he says. When you look at this, Christianity is often described as this blind faith and it's often portrayed in a way like it's some fairy tale faith. You just have to believe it. You just got to have faith in it that it's real and that it's right. No, we have eyewitness records of the miraculous signs revealing that this man Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah. We have eyewitness records to prove showing that this was no ordinary man. And who is Jesus revealed as? John says it, the Christ, the Son of God. 
understand this, you and I, we are not allowed to have our own personal interpretation of who Jesus is. It's not allowed. There's so much talk today to people, who, who is Jesus to you? Well, Jesus is kind of like this friend that I have, uh, this friend who's really close to me. Jesus is kind of like this, this, this person who after all these years, he just seems to always be there. Other people say he, he's someone that, he's just my go-to person. When I just need to pray and talk to someone, he's there. There's enough of that nonsense in the world and in the church today. It's absolute rubbish. We are not allowed to have our own personal interpretation of who Jesus is. He is the Christ, the Son of God. That's what's been written of Him. And John says, believing that is the purpose of this book and it's vital that you believe that. Now, I want to look at these two descriptions, these identity badges of who John says Jesus is. Firstly, he says, He is the Christ. Now, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's often portrayed as that because we call him Jesus Christ. It's just given as, this, as if it's some last name. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. He is the Messiah. This is the long foretold one. The, the whole first half of your Bible, the Old Testament, was all looking forward to the Messiah. John says it is him and the Messiah would be a deliverer. He would be a liberator. He would would be one who would bring justice and peace. And when the Messiah comes, he would change the course of history forever. Why? Because this one, unlike every other ruler and king, he comes in with an everlasting dominion and kingdom. Messiah also means anointed one. He is the one that God has put his seal upon. Peter says that he was chosen by God before the foundation of the world. He is God's one. He is God's man. He is the one that God has appointed to accomplish this. He's the anointed one. Why is it so important? Why is it so important for Jews to understand Jews to understand that Jesus is the Messiah because the whole Old Testament finds its fulfillment in Jesus as the Messiah. All the roles, all the functions of the Old Testament find their fulfillment and completion in Jesus as the Messiah. Think about it. The sacrifices of the Old Testament, they are fulfilled in Jesus. He is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The temple that the meeting place with God is replaced by Jesus because He is called Emmanuel, God with us. The meeting place with God now is Christ. He replaces the high priest who went in to intercede for the people. He now intercedes for us. Paul says there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He replaces every priest with himself. He is our high priest. He he fulfills the prophets. The prophets spoke the word of God. Jesus is called the word. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. The word was made flesh. He's the revelation of God. He fulfills the kings. 
All of them were sinful and wicked. They all died and perished. Even David, the greatest king among them. David was anointed by Samuel with oil. What do we see of Christ when he comes on the scene? He comes into the water and it says, the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove and he's anointed by the Holy Spirit. He is the fulfillment of the kings and he's the king of all nations. And he is the fulfillment of the altar. This is so significant. All true worship, the only worship that is acceptable to God is through Jesus Christ. It's through Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. In 2009, with the Bible college that I attended, I had the privilege of going to Israel. And when I went there, when we got to Jerusalem, I looked in that city area and there's only one wall remaining of the old temple, the original temple, the Western Wall. And it was devastating to watch Jews every single day line that wall, bowing, praying, crying out to God. What were they praying? They were pleading at this wall and saying, God, when will you finally send the Messiah? You have promised so long. And John says, look at the signs. He has already come. He is here. He's here. It's vitally important that we do not miss it. He has come. Why is it so important for non-Jews to believe that Jesus is the Messiah? For this world, those who aren't Jewish, Australians, us, why is it so important that we believe that Jesus is the Messiah and come to accept it? Just look at our world today. Look at the turmoil that our world is in. Our, our world, the Western society is so depressed, it must be numbed with a drug of entertainment just to survive and go on another day. We are filled with fear and anxiety. We have more guilt than we can even bear. You look at it, our social structures have been diminished and destroyed. Look at the family now. It's been absolutely ruined. Divorce is rampant. Children have to watch their parents separated and the one that they live with, their mum or their dad has a new sexual partner every single year that they bring home. Everything is in ruin. We don't trust our leaders. We don't trust any of that. And everything, it points to something that's undeniably obvious. For all of our education, technolo technology and advancement, it has not fixed the problem. In all of our development, it has not fixed the problem. So what has the Western world done? What have we done? We've looked to our governments to fix it. We look to our governments to bring us peace. We look to our governments to make us safe. We look to our governments to get rid of the problem of sin. Do you understand what our governments cannot do? God has done through His Son, Jesus, and He has fixed it. God has done it. What our government cannot do, He has sent His Son, the Messiah, and the Messiah came with healing in His wings and He fixes the problem of sin. He does. That's why He came. And He reconciles sinners to God. When Jesus came, salvation for this world came. He is the one. It's so important that this world comes to know Jesus as the Messiah, the sent one of God. John says he writes so that you'd believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but he says that you would believe also that he is the Son of God. If the title Christ, the Messiah, if that refers to the title of his office and his function, what he's come to do, 
then the Son of God is the title of his nature, who he is in and of himself. This refers to him, who he was and who he has been for all eternity past. He has always been the Son of God, the very Son of God, the one who comes to earth is none other than God's own son. Jesus, in John, in John chapter 8, verse 23, he says to the people this, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. You see, God doesn't send us another descendant of Adam. He sends us the second person of the Trinity, his own son, the son of God, God the son. That's who he sends us. When, when uh, Thomas saw the resurrected Jesus, he cried out, my Lord and my God, he is equal with the Father. He's eternal. That's why Jesus accepted worship. That's why he received worship because he's the eternal son of God. Do you understand how important this teaching is? It absolutely obliterates the teaching of Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. They teach that Jesus was a created being and this destroys that. This absolutely obliterates the teachings of Islam. They teach that he was a prophet. No, he is the son of God. And Jesus' enemies knew this. They tried to kill him because you who are a man make yourself equal with God, they said. They knew his claims. It's not a mere prophet. He's not a created being. He's the son of God. And this is what John says, you must believe this about Jesus. So let me ask you, let me ask you this morning, do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the son of God? Do you believe that? You may say some wonderful things about Christ. You may call him some nice things, say nice things about Jesus. But if you do not believe what has been written about him, it profits you nothing. Your interpretation means nothing if you do not believe what John has written about him. Let me quote a very old Christian who says these wonderful words. Alexander McLaren writes this, many an exceptional scholar who has studied the Bible all his life has missed the purpose for which this book was given. And many a poor old woman in her garret has found it. Have you found it? Have you understood the purpose of all of it? Understand, even this morning, a great responsibility and duty has been placed upon every single person listening right now. You have the duty and the great responsibility to believe in who Jesus is, who he is. Now, this leads to my second and final point. John's second purpose is that you would be saved, is that you would be saved. Look at verse 31 with me. But these things that have been written are so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John says, I'm writing all this so that you may gain and obtain life in Jesus. What's this life referring to that he's talking about? What's this life that you need to gain? Well, the word needing to gain life implies something, doesn't it? People, look at John's argument, people need life, which means that they don't have it if they need it. And if they don't have life, what does that mean? It means they're dead. You need life, you don't have it, therefore you're dead, John's saying. 
We need this life. And John says, this deadness that we have, it means we are cut off from God. We do not have any spiritual life. We cannot please God, nor do we desire to please Him. We have no relationship. We, there's, there's, you know, there's these descriptions today in Christianity that people portray sinners as those who are sick and unwell. That's not the biblical teaching. The biblical teaching is that we have no spiritual life. We're dead. Even though we live, we're dead. There is nothing in us that pleases Him. We're cut off from the life of God. And so every, every path that we pursue as well is death. Its end is death. The pursuit of success, the pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of pleasure, the pursuit of everything, it all leads to death. Listen, not all roads lead to Rome. All roads lead to hell. It all goes one way. This is what John is showing. And he's saying that we need life. We need life. This is the picture that he's illustrating of every single person on the planet that we are on death row. Our trial has already been over with. It's been done and the verdict has come in. We are guilty of murder. We are guilty of treason. We are guilty of blasphemy. We are guilty of fraud. And the sentence of death has been pronounced on all of us, every single one of us. And now all that's left is to walk the green mile, the final hallway, that's it. And as you're walking to the electric chair, you see your name above the chair. It's all there. Everything is prepared. You can feel them fastening your wrists, your feet and your head in the straps. Everything's ready to go. And as you look out into the viewing room, it's filled with angels watching your destruction. And just about the moment that the switch is about to flick, the phone rings in the room. The phone rings and it's picked up. And the voice over the phone says, stop what you're doing. This man has been cleared of every single charge. This is no longer a dead man. This is a man who's been granted life. This is what John is talking about here. What is this life that John is referring to, to those who are on death row? What is it? He's talking about spiritual life. This, this word life is such a rich word. It encompasses so much. It means spiritual life. It means eternal life. This is nothing less than the forgiveness, the complete forgiveness of sin, past offences, present offences and sins that you haven't even committed yet complete and absolute pardon. This is reconciliation with a God whose anger hangs over your head because of your sin, because you've broken His laws. This is peace now with that God. This is fellowship with Him. This word life, it also refers to immortality now. These mortal bodies will be clothed with immortality. It means a new heart. It means a new nature. What you used to love, that life of sin, you now get given a new heart that loves God, that loves Him, that pursues Him. And now you also have a living hope, Peter writes. You gain a living hope that we're going to receive an unshakable inheritance. This world is going to burn with fire, it says one day, but we get a living hope, a new heavens and a new earth. Now, how is this life obtained? This wonderful life that John says that you may have it. How is it obtained? Look at verse 31. That by believing you may have life in His name. How is life gained? By believing in Him. Now you read that and you look at it and you want to edit it in your mind, don't you? 
You look at those words and it does not seem right. Surely it must be based upon the way that you live your life. Surely you gain favour with God and you will get to heaven based upon the way that you live. You want to earn it, don't you? You want to achieve it. Surely you can tick it off. Surely you, you can obtain it. Understand, it's always been this way in the history of the world. Look at every single spiritual religion. Go to them and they will give you a list of requirements and then they'll point you off in the way and say, good luck. Every generation is guilty of rebuilding the Tower of Babel. We will try and get to the heavens on our own. We will and we will fight to make it happen and God will have none of it. He will have none of it. Dear listener, please, If you're a Catholic, if you're of the Church of Christ and you think like a Catholic, if you're Baptist and you think like a Catholic, look at the plain reading of Scripture that by believing you may have life in His name, that by believing, by putting your faith in Him, Jesus says this as well. He who believes in me passes from death to life. That wonderful, famous verse, for all who believe in him will never perish, but have eternal life. It is by believing a person is saved, rescued from judgment by putting their faith in Jesus Christ. This is faith and trust in Him. This is to look at yourself and acknowledge, I am not good, I cannot save myself and decide with the greatest religious man who ever lived, the Apostle Paul, and say to him, everything I have ever achieved is but rubbish and I count as loss for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ. Everything is loss. It is to find refuge in Jesus Christ, to take refuge in Him. Do you see what John's painting here for us? John paints us all as dead, but he paints Jesus as life, as the life giver. So before every single one of us, even now, Jesus is presented as the tree of life. He who believes in Jesus eats of the fruit of the tree of life. He's here to believe in him, to be saved and rescued. When you read the Gospels, It is unmistakably clear. John shows us there is one saviour. There is one hope for men. There is one door to heaven. There is one gate to eternal life. There is only one hope. There's only one refuge from the coming storm of God's judgment. We have one gospel and one saviour and it's Jesus Christ. And our gospel is if you will believe in Him for the forgiveness of sins, you will be saved. You will be saved. That is all that we have. Let me put it in the negative way that Jesus says in John's gospel. He says, unless you believe in me, you will die in your sin. You will die in your sin. We have only one saviour. There is no one else to come. There is no one else to come. And so as I close, let me invite you. If you hear this, why why are you hesitant for... To coming to Christ? Why are you hesitant? Why do you hesitate? What stops you? Why are you unwilling, unwilling to come to Christ and believe in Him? What, what could be the possible reason, a justifiable reason for not doing this? Is He too far removed? Do you say that Jesus is too distant? He who is the Son of God became flesh and came to us when you didn't come to Him. Do you say that he, His love hasn't been revealed enough? Has He not proven His love? 
He who is willing to be trampled by his father so that we could walk free who are guilty? Is he not worthy of our submission to come and embrace him as Lord and Saviour? Understand that archangels and demons bow and tremble before him. He is worthy of your submission and the bowing of your knee to receive him as Lord. He's worthy of it. And does he not come offering us relief to our greatest need? No, that your greatest need is not a new car. Your greatest need is not even healing from a debilitating sickness. Your greatest need isn't restoration of a marriage or finding a marriage partner. Your greatest need in this life and in the next is someone who can take away your sin and bring you peace with a God whose judgment hangs upon you. That is your greatest need. Does he not come bringing you relief to that? Or lastly, are you unwilling because you think that Christ is irrelevant? I mean, after all, you're a 21st century person, right? You got a busy life, don't you? You've got many things to do. Jesus is just something that maybe you can add to your life, right? Let me, let me assure you of this. There is nothing more relevant than Jesus Christ. Not only did he make you, not only does he offer salvation, but he is so relevant because he's coming back again. And when he comes back again, it is to judge the world. When Jesus appears or work or trade, or recreation, or family life, everything will cease and He will summon every single person to His judgment bench. And know this, when judgment day happens, there will be no preacher, there will be no spouse, there'll be no friend to vouch for you on that day. It'll just be you with your sin before a holy God. On that day, children will watch their parents be summoned before the judgment throne of God and parents will watch their children summoned before the judgment throne of God. And what will you do? What will you do on that day? The books will be opened of your life and you'll be given an accounting of what you have done in this life. Is he irrelevant? No, he's not. There's nothing more relevant than him. So I implore you with, with the Apostle John this morning, everything is about this. Believe and take refuge and shelter in Jesus, the Messiah, our Saviour, the Son of God, our Lord. He is presented to you this morning as life. Will you take hold of him? May the Lord bless his word to each person here this morning. Amen. Wow, thank you very much for that word this morning, Nathan. What assurance and hope that we have in who Jesus is and, and what he can do for us. And I would encourage you to consider that question that Nathan has posed. Are you convinced of who Jesus is? He has the power to save you. And uh, we'd love to chat with you more about that. You can reach out to one of our elders um, through the contact us on our website or maybe one of your friends that attends this church who's a follower of Christ. But really consider that today. Let that sink in and, and consider where you stand with Jesus. We're going to post the sermon as well that was mentioned in the interview um, that impacted Nathan. So that'll be posted on our Facebook page and on our sermon, on the sermon page of our website where you can find today's message along with that other message. We're really looking forward to seeing people next week and to be able to gather together in person. Um, just a little note, next week will be slightly different. Obviously, uh, some people will want to continue to live stream, perhaps 
due to health or maybe you're at a higher risk. Um, and of course, if you have uh, flu or flu-like symptoms, we'd encourage you to stay home as well. Uh, so from next week, we won't be using Facebook to live stream anymore. We're going to move to YouTube. So you'll still be able to click on the link on our website. So that's wcoc.org.au slash live. You'll be able to watch it there. We can post a link on Facebook. So it'll be very similar. You'll just have to click and then it'll take you to YouTube instead of watching in Facebook. And you can still make comments on YouTube as well. So uh, if you have any difficulties, with that, reach out and we can help you with that. So as you go, I want to read 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.